I'm Matthew Woods, host of Leading Out of the Woods, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Jeremy Glauser, who's the founder and CEO of Eluma. To date, Eluma has facilitated therapy like speech, school psych, OT, PT, and mental health counseling services for tens of thousands of students throughout the U.S. Well, originally I talked with Jeremy back in 2020, a little thing called COVID was going on, so a lot's gone on in three years. And so we're catching up today with Jeremy and E. Luma. Thanks for joining us. And, and, and by the way, uh, before you go, it'd be so cool. You know, you could do a couple things to help out the podcast. One, you could uh, buy me a cup of coffee, a soda, whatever you want to call it. I have a little link for that on my website. And you can donate a dollar and help me with uh, queuing up on my equipment and such. Uh, another way would be joining my uh, email list by uh, on the going to the front page. There's a little link there where you could uh, fill out your email and join and and uh, I'll update you from time to time with some new stuff going on. And uh, finally, one of the things you could do is go to stephenmaletto.com slash reviews and uh, go in there and say a few nice words. What do you think? That'd be so cool. You're awesome. Enjoy the show. The minds and hearts of people making decisions in districts, as well as families and caregivers, have accepted that a hybrid approach to therapy and student support is not just viable, it's actually producing good outcomes for kids. So we'll continue to see how that positively impacts our kids. It's the Education Podcast, your favorite show, with lots of groovy guests and they share what they know. So crank it up to 10 and let your neighbors know that here's another show with Dr. Steve Milletto. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12, ah, ah, with Dot Stimoletto. Jeremy Glauser is the founder and CEO of Eluma. With a background in education and entrepreneurial spirit and a passion for helping people in need, he founded Eluma to help solve the growing educator shortage problems in education. In so doing, the company has become the nation's most mission-focused, two-sided marketplace that matches and connects the right clinicians with students in K-12 schools and districts. To date, the company has facilitated therapy, speech, school psych, OT, PT, and mental health counseling services for tens of thousands of students throughout the United States. His professional mission is to help people fulfill their full potential. His personal passions surround family, including an amazing wife, five kids, and a playful pup. This is Jeremy's second time on my podcast, which is really cool because it seems like it was just yesterday, but it's not. A lot of stuff has happened in between, uh, but I'm looking so forward to catching up because our last talk was in 2020. So uh, just a few things happened since then. Jeremy, welcome back, and, and thanks so much for joining me. Say hello to everyone. Hello, everybody. It's good to be with you. And Steve, it has felt like uh, just a flash, but a lot has happened, you know, I think it's impressive that you managed to be executive director of Arisa and produce such great content with this podcast. So kudos to you and thanks for creating tools and content that help administrators and educators all over the country. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. And uh, um, this is uh, this is really cool to reconnect with you because it's really cool what you guys do and uh, and so much needed, by the way. <laughs> um, as I, we're There is a great need. And I have to, I have to make this comment before we go any further, because, you know, it, I was talking with someone the other day about, uh, in 2020, 
you know, I'm, I'm in um, North Metro Atlanta. All right. And uh, so just outside of Atlanta and um, to the North and uh, in uh the days that we talked in 2020, as things were getting worse, there was a point in which, you know, because the Interstate 75 goes through the middle of Atlanta. It was <laughs> all through the state, take you all the way down to Florida, all points beyond that type of thing. And uh, there was a point in 2020 where you could drive in this lane, that lane, this lane, that lane, whatever lane you wanted and have <laughs> no problem whatsoever. It was like, yeah. it was like, you know, the zombie apocalypse that happened or something like that, or is getting ready to take place. Whereas today, if I was to try to do that, you're going to end up getting honked at, told your number one, a couple of times and stuff like this. And, uh, and you know, not really number one, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. wrong finger, but uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a mess out there. So we've gone back from, you know, those days where it just, People just disappeared to where we are now. And I, I would think that, uh, you know, one of the things that you run into with trying to help with people's mental health needs is that uh, it's a little, that was a little different world, wasn't it? It was a very different world. And it came upon us real quick. Many weren't prepared and really caused a shock to the system. Just like trauma happens in all of our lives it's it was a traumatic experience for society as a body it it really was and it's just it's hard to explain um mm -hmm. you know because now it's one of those things that you know you just you kind of refer to oh that was uh pre-covid or that happened post-covid something it, like isn't that. isn't that the truth <laughs> i i have a similar experience driving down the highway and and uh among all of the negatives during that time there were a few silver linings and one was less traffic it's <laughs> Another was, you know, spending more time with with those that I love. Um, I know that that it wasn't wonderful all the time. It was hard in many ways, and it was harder for many who don't have stable living situations and you know difficulty working and educating from home. But we're past that, and now we have to face some of the real consequences and. To me, that's an opportunity, but it's also a very big challenge. And I really like where we sit, Steve, because we get to help kids in a meaningful way. It's probably one of the biggest challenges we've faced as a school system across this nation ever, um, at least in our lifetimes. And, you know, it's so, and just everything you've talked about so far is just Right there, because you know, hopefully, we never have to do this that again. Oh, I sure hope not. Jeez, but it it and the trauma that it created, and it on a, all different sorts of planes, by the way, because there were some people who decided that, please, I never want to be a teacher again. Please take them back from my house, my kids. And I'm talking about the parents who suddenly had to teach their kids, and they're like, "What? What? What?" <laughs> and that's uh, right. And uh, I I had a neighbor who he always works from home, and. Uh, and then COVID happened. And I, one day I was outside um, and uh, he came storming out of the house. He's outside. And, and so we we're like <laughs> a bunch of yards apart from each other. Um, and uh, he said, Hey, how you doing? And I said, I'm good. How about you? And he goes, they're driving me nuts. I'm not supposed to have all these people <laughs> in my house. <laughs> all three of his kids were home at the same time. Plus, his wife was there too, and you know he's used to just having the house to himself to do his work from home. And I just thought that that was kind of a statement of the time. <laughs> so, 
Yeah, there's a reason that there are sayings like distance makes the heart grow fonder. Yes, yes. Very nice. Very nice. I like that. Uh, all right. So, Jeremy, it's been three years since our last chat. I mean, can can you help uh, remind people what Iluma exists for? What's its purpose? Absolutely. Thanks for the opportunity, Steve. I, I can't believe it's been three years <laughs> and we've lived and survived a pandemic. It's pretty incredible what we've been through. And so much has happened. The world has definitely changed. I've changed as a human being. I know that much of my community has changed. And Iluma has evolved too. We're, we're really hyper-focused on helping schools to implement preventative student support services. And before COVID, it was very much a focus on tier three special education. And Iluma is now focused on the entire multi-tiered system of supports. And we've taken mental health and a preventative measure approach to a tier one and a tier two basis. And we continue to evolve. Which that's a nice segue because that's what I, I, I want to ask you is let's let's talk a little bit about that because, you know, it's been a couple of years. So changes happen. Um, you know, you, we're talking about teletherapy here. Are, are there any noticeable changes or advancements that have taken place now that, you know, where we are now from where we were then? A lot. We still have a long way to go technologically, funding, systematically with regards to behavioral health. And from our beginnings, we've always approached teletherapy as a way to build capacity within the school systems. And we've always viewed it as a long-term partnership because schools have a great workforce on site. We need these professionals in person with kids, but we also need a hybrid solution to build capacity. There's a, a dramatic shortage. And one of the biggest changes that has happened is a mindset change. The minds and hearts of people making decisions in districts, as well as families and caregivers, have accepted that a hybrid approach to therapy and student support is not just viable, it's actually producing good outcomes for kids. So we'll continue to see how that positively impacts our kids. And we've seen a lot of that. I think another, another big uh, change that, that the traumatic experience of COVID caused was the immediate awareness of all the mental health issues that were underlying the system. And not just school systems, but society. And I'm really grateful for a common language that we feel more comfortable with now. We can talk about mental health challenges. We can talk about how my wife and I go to a counselor for our marriage. We've never been parents before. We're trying to love each other and understand each other. And, and I don't feel guilty or shame about asking for someone to help me develop my, my brain and my emotions. And in schools, preventative mental health measures are taken seriously now. Is it easy? No way, because funding sources are disparate. Got grants coming. There are federal so uh, funding streams that are coming, but it's still disconnected. And without the funding and the systems to really implement preventative mental health, it will continue to be a challenge. But the positive is that there's a lot of conversation. There's a lot of advocacy 
and we're seeing funding sources come through. And my hopes is my hope is that with these funds, with these systems, and innovation within schools, we can help educators. We can take burdens off that are are causing burnout. There's a lot of uh, stress on those wonderful people in the classroom every day doing the the day-to-day grind, the the work of love. And we need to support them so they want to stay. Oh, I we want that. them there. We need them there. Yeah, you feel it. You you know it across your resa. I'm sure you see that. Yes, I do. And it's, you know, it's something that uh, you know, because there was a little bit of time there where people were trying to figure out how to do uh, you know, teaching at home. So trying to do it remotely. And uh, you know, and how do you deal with the fact that uh, the kids could turn you off? Right. I mean, you know, it's one thing to turn somebody off by sitting there and you're just on another cloud, but you're physically in the room and, uh, you know, you can remind them, hey, I don't know if you know this, but I can see you. All right. So but as as opposed to the world where you actually literally could just turn off your camera and and go do whatever you (laughs) were going to do for a while. And I think some of that, you know, has played a role in, in what, you know, causes different types of interactions that didn't happen before um, with the teacher and the students, because as they come back to go in, there's, you know, it may still be trying to turn them off. <laughs> you, you know, you're right. And it's because we bring everything with us as humans. It's hard to completely compartmentalize what happens in our communities. And we've not only seen a pandemic, we've seen social injustice, we've seen wars, inflation, economic turbulence, you know, we've seen a lot happen and we have to give ourselves some grace, especially those who are um, not equipped with all the tools like young people or marginalized youth who don't feel heard or accepted. And, and that is the, the challenge that, that we face that, that has caused such an important movement within schools is we no longer can ignore all of these very profound effects from outside school buildings. Well, very much so. Very much so. It's a, it's an interesting, uh, interesting world that's been created as a result of having to go through all that. And it's people are still trying to figure it out and which I'm really is, you know, helped out by the fact of what you guys do. So let's, let's get in a little bit more into that, which is, you know, one of the things that, uh, has been persistent with educators is not showing up for work, you know, chronic absenteeism, you know, it's, and it's, it's rough. I mean, recent data suggests its impact is more profound than we thought. I mean, what insights and strategies are employed to tackle this issue and how can uh, Eluma help with it? I'm glad you bring this up because this is not a well-known issue, but it is becoming an increasingly urgent matter The White House released a statement in September of last year and talked all about absenteeism. And I'll share a couple of statistics from that that report. One is that that, uh, as of now, we have 16% of schools, sorry, 16% of students who are actually chronically absent. That's one in six or 7 million students. It's significant. And if we don't have students in school, we don't have the ability to influence them through learning and nutrition and 
and the things that we know can help them. We also know that that absenteeism is call, caused by many of the things we've already outlined, violence, um, poverty, uh, community or family situations, homelessness, mental health is a big contributor to this, which is spurred by bullying and uh, physical harm and also the effects of social media. There's a lot that goes into it. But like you said, we're we're seeing that it's becoming and ballooning a, a big problem. Not to mention, if we don't have students there, we can't get the funding. And administrators are expected to do the same amount of uh, effort and deliver the same level of service, but with less funding if we can't, um, you know, report a, a particular student population. You know, it's such an interesting uh, aspect of it because, you know, a lot of times, especially, so here's one of those words, pre-COVID, <laughs> um, as a teacher, instructor, administrator, mm-hmm. there's not a whole lot of people saying to you, so how are you doing today? You hanging in there? <laughs> and I'm talking about it to the educator as opposed to, you know, they, you have a lot of people talking about some of the kids and stuff like this, but not a lot of them talking to the educator. And post COVID, a lot of that's happening because the you know, there are a number of people who didn't return to the classroom, didn't return to the buildings. Um, they're still experiencing uh, as teachers are starting to come back to the field. They are experiencing on the other end of the spectrum the administrators, and especially like the district administrators, like the superintendents, deciding that yeah, it's time to retire. And right. uh, you know, and it's uh, um, I think you know one of the th- it, it's just amazing how much this pushed itself to the forefront that there are issues that have to be addressed that people are dealing with. There are, and and it, it's going to require a, a lot of different things. I like to see that the White House has has identified this as a significant problem, and they're putting they've put plans into place, and we should see those come to fruition. But it's it's not just funding and programming, but it's partnering. We also have to look at public-private partnerships differently, look at innovation differently. The access to counselors and therapists is identified as one of the primary hurdles for schools to address the behavioral health or mental health challenge that leads to absenteeism. And specifically, to answer your question, that's how Iluma helps, is we take one of the biggest problems that schools face which is capacity to to have the right professionals on hand for staff and for students. So that as trauma or crises or even um, students who are at risk, students who face anxiety, depression, these are important factors to intervene with proactively. So we help schools not just screen universally, but then interpret that data, identify students most at risk, and swoop in with high-quality professionals who can sit in live talk therapy and help these kids process. And that has shown to not just be one of the biggest needs, but have a tremendous impact on the ability to keep students in schools, to help educators know how to face the challenges in the classroom and outside the classroom. Gotcha. Uh, so while you're talking about this, one of the things that it brings to mind is that um, 
yeah, there are people who it's just kind of one of the things they do is that they've uh, sought therapy or they, you know, whether it's couples therapy or therapy for themselves or therapy for their children and you know, whatever's going on, something there, there's some people who've done that. But on the other hand, there are many who have not, nor may have had access to having therapists before. Do you find that is something that you have to contend with also is that when someone has never done that and then in the tele teletherapy world as well, um, you're trying to help, help someone who may be, I don't know, throwing up where barriers <laughs> to, to that. How do you, how do you re react to that? How do you. There's still a stigma with mental health, but I'm really optimistic about it. And the best way that I can, I can explain my mindset on this is compare it to our physical health. There was a point in time in our society where physical health was actually frowned upon. You wouldn't take a bath. You wouldn't brush your teeth. It wasn't a habit. As a matter of fact, it wasn't until the early 1900s that the daily practice of brushing teeth was considered good hygiene and advantageous for health. That was a hundred years ago. And so we're going through this evolution. And the reason I feel optimistic is because we've had a widespread acceptance that mental health is something that is part of our entire health, right? Mental health is health. And so we are seeing a significant change there. So yes, we definitely see hesitancy. Um, we see uh, more openness, but the way you you address that is by being a good human. And as a professional, you you meet people where they are, you build the relationship, and then you bring evidence-based practices to help them address the issues that they're facing. So that ultimately they can be successful academically, they can be successful as, as humans, they can transition properly, right? It just depends on where that person is and meeting them where they are. Like that. You know, one of the things, and this kind of leads me uh, right into something that you know, last time we talked, a big part of our conversation centered around um, social emotional learning or SEL. Yeah. And, uh, um, you know, I would think that it's become more pronounced now, especially with some of the things you just talked about. Um, you know, what trends are you observing you know, regarding the need for supporting the kids in this world? I'm seeing a really good trend, but it's also very controversial. There are many viewpoints on it. The most extreme on the one hand might be don't get inside my child's head. Where on the other hand, it's this is fundamental to your existence as a human. Social, emotional, and behavioral learning came out as one of the top six strategies from the CDC just in December. And the CDC doesn't put something out without extensive research. And that's coupled with research from the University of Maryland and what the National Center on School Mental Health is doing, Castle. Um, University of, uh, of, sorry, Rutgers, ASU, lots of universities are showing that there is a, there is a correlation between social, emotional, behavioral learning and academic outcomes. It's like a child who doesn't have food in their belly. We know that physical health is important to academic success. We are in fight or flight mode. If we are constantly in a state of hunger. 
We can't employ our executive functioning and logical brain. So it's very similar from a social emotional standpoint. If we are in a constant state of stress, if we are in a state of constant anxiety, depression, facing these, these other experiences, then it's very difficult to learn and to retain that. So it's a critical part of our learning and it's very politicized. There's a state that, that legislated the term SEL out of the state. And so what happens? They rebrand it and it's now called well-being. And other states are calling it behavioral health and others are calling it mental health, wellness. But really ultimately the social, emotional and behavioral learning, whether it's branded in one name or another is, is becoming more ubiquitous. And we're seeing a lot more adoption of programs like Second Step or the DESA screener for social emotional competencies and similar kinds of solutions that are adopted into curriculums. You know, it's, and I appreciate you explain that because it's, is it, instead of it kind of going away, it's gotten, there's a greater demand for um, adults to understand that world uh, that you're trying to help. I mean, I, I, I can't even imagine, I mean, cause I, I lost family members who the, they, they had to be closed inside a hospital. Wow. And, uh, um, you know, and their direct, um, this was an aunt and uncle and uh, mm. their children had to talk to them through a window um, as they were struggling with the pneumonia that came with it and all kinds of other stuff that uh, they were having problems with and breathing and, and they're, they're advanced in age and the, um, but it's, you know, young children having to, to contend with that with parents or grandparents or whatever, you know, it's just one aspect of it. The, you know, one of the things that as a, uh, as a former principal, you try and get the faculty to understand um, now this is in just the world as a whole that, uh, you know, kids react how you react as, as their <laughs> teacher, as their, as their administrators, as their parents, as their grandparents. There's a lot of truth to that. Yes. 100%. And if you're, struggling and, and, you know, to not get along or not be able to figure it out and, and uh, having a hard time keeping it together. What's the kid thinking? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is bad, right? <laughs> it is. And, and uh, some of the research is, it, it does show that what you're saying is true. Just as we view sicknesses as contagious, emotional, or mental states can also be contagious. And um, it's an analogy that's imperfect, but it conveys a truth that's that we're learning as mental health becomes better understood as a society. It, it's an interesting thing because it's, you know, it, I don't know. sorry, I'm, I, I just had my 60th birthday this last, this past August. Hey, congratulations. Thanks. I greatly appreciate you look it. Great. I oh, appreciate that. Thank you. And uh, I, uh, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, uh, so I've been around for a while and it's, uh, it's one of those things where, you know, at the time that you're at in different stages of life, you think, dang gum, we're good, man. We're very advanced, you know? And, and, and I mean, like I was in college in the eighties in early eighties and, um, and I still think by the way, best music. So, but, uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> but anyway, the, the, 
the point is, is that, uh, um, you know, you, you think about how advanced you are at the times. And it's just funny because you would have thought by now we would have a bigger handle on some of how we as humans react to trauma and deal with trauma and stuff like this. And in, instead it makes me go, dang gum, you know, we, we really weren't that far in deal and we weren't really anywhere in dealing with it, I guess. In many ways we've complicated it more for ourselves. And although social media isn't the only complication, it's one that has had a tremendous impact on the youth of our generation particularly young women from the ages of 11 to 14 and then young men, the effect of social media on suicidal ideation looks like a hockey stick from 2007 to current. And the young lady's hockey stick is above, meaning higher volume than the, the young men, but the hockey stick follows the same trend. And, and, and it's, it's really sad. I had, I had, uh, so years ago, I volunteered for a youth program, some kids who had disabilities and some who didn't, but we would do adventure activities and, and teach them and give them opportunities to learn in ways, especially for those who didn't necessarily have role models. And one of those, those boys ended up committing suicide and died by suicide. And uh, it was really hard in the community. And I've struggled with my own mental health and don't say it with in any kind of flippant manner, but have also struggled with suicide ideation. And it's interesting how we can get to that point as humans, but we also know more and more what can help us with that. And it's all interconnected between what we eat and how we act and our community relationships and, and, uh, when we choose to live our, our lives in accordance with the values that we have, we find ourselves a lot happier. And it's our goal as a company to help school systems and students find a positive psychology and find a way forward because life is hard. It's not easy, but we can develop coping mechanisms and we can actually thrive if we have the right tools, if we develop the right habits. Excellent. Excellent. I, you know, one of the things that uh, um, I heard that uh, Elima has done recently is announced a partnership with Aperture. Um, could you fill us in on the details of this collaboration and talk a little bit about how it helps the most at-risk students? I would love to. Aperture has been around for a while. I've known Jessica Adamson and her team for a couple of years, and they're doing incredible work. Evidence-based research that has been tried and tested. And it is a social emotional screening tool that is meant to be used universally across a tier one uh, approach. And with that data, you identify students who are at risk and then develop the correlating interventions to help those students. So it was a very natural partnership. We are very complementary to one another. One of the main problems that Aperture faces is, is schools not having the capacity to act on the data that they get from these screeners. One of the challenges we face is not always knowing which students to intervene with quickly. So by having a screening tool that schools leverage, interpreting the data, identifying students at risk, 
and then intervening, we can take a load off of schools. We can build that capacity so that schools don't feel the cold sweat of knowing they have to intervene, but they don't have capacity and they'll get in trouble if they don't. We can do that with them. We can help them and we can take the fear out of, of taking action. And that's what this partnership really empowers us to do. And what I can do is, is uh, along with some of the, the sources that we've talked about today, I'll share those with you and you're happy. I'm happy to, to have you uh, post those for your listeners, but also there's a, a page on our website with more explanation of how are schools leveraging the screening, the identifying and the intervening with this partnership. Oh, excellent. And that'd be cool. So it, just to kind of link to that, I can link to that page or, or whatever, just to share those resources like that you're referring to. That'd be yeah, I'll, I'll give you a, a bunch of resources that support the conversation that we're having and then learn more. Excellent. Uh, looking ahead, I mean, what trends you see coming up in teletherapy and, 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 and its work with education? I mean, what you see down the road, how's, how's eLuma getting ready for those times, whatever's coming? You know, we can make our best guesses and read the tea leaves, but um, it's hard to get it perfect. What we do see is a very clear path to funding and systematically implementing preventative mental health measures. There's a lot that's that's around learning loss, um, reading and math, um, absenteeism, all of those things, they are interrelated where we're focused and where I'm coming from is the lens of mental health. So please keep that in mind. There are a lot of emerging innovations that are are coming out, whether it's screening tools or it's um, interacting with students on a more regular basis to evaluate the mental health of, of the school and the, the staff, coaching tools and what what we fully expect is that over the coming decades, we will see schools begin to wrap their heads around how to incorporate a preventative mental health. I sit on the industry council for the Kennedy Forum, which was founded by um, Patrick and Amy Kennedy uh, back in the early 2000s. And we just had an Alignment for Progress conference in, in Boston and launched a 30-30-30 campaign. Uh, sorry, <laughs> I said that very wrong. That's funny. They We just launched a 90-90-90 campaign <laughs> by tw- uh, 2033. And what that means is 90% of people will be screened for a mental health or substance use disorder. And then 90% of those will receive an evidence-based intervention. And 90% of those will show progress based on that. And it's lofty. But I don't know anybody that didn't accomplish anything without ambition and and goals. So I see a lot of uh, good change, good movement and funding systems and advocacy, particularly for mental health. That's awesome. I mean, that's, you know, with programs like that, especially for, um, I don't know if this is such a thing, but kind of like the concept of someone who would not even have thought to go to to need to experience um some sort of uh, therapy and uh that is a that is not a, a a tool in their toolkit that they would think that they would want to pursue that making it available for uh, you know families like that that hadn't even thought about it that 
I could see that down the road being uh, having a major impact as well. Yeah, yeah, and and you're spot on. I think one of the things that you're calling out is that there's a growing tolerance for therapy and acceptance of it, but there is a shortage of professionals in the future. Um, we've got a lot of motion now. We're confident that that there are a, plenty of counselors and school psychologists to meet the current need that we that we're seeing. But we also see in the future that there will it will be harder to really match kids and and staff with a live talk therapist. So we also need innovation around coaching models or using AI or screening to better identify uh, tools that are that are uh, and, and programs that are evidence based to help prevent so that the more severe cases don't surface as often. So it does go beyond the talk therapy. And, and I think that's really important, especially when we're looking future. Uh, that's awesome. I appreciate it. You go in there with us. The, you know, one of the th things that I got to ask is, so what does working with Eluma look like? I mean, if you're, if you're the student, the teacher, the the school system, I mean, what, what does that look like? It, it, I mean, am I sitting down with uh, my laptop and pinging you and saying, Hey, I'm here. Yeah. Cl close your eyes, picture yourself on a beach in the Bahamas, sipping a lemonade. And that's exactly what it's like, Steve. Nice. <laughs> no, but we really do want to eliminate the stress because working with Iluma is easy. We integrate and we're a long-term partner. Uh, like we talked about earlier, it's really key to the success of, of meeting the demand to have a hybrid approach. And it may not work for every district or every student, but it works for many, if not most, to bring a workforce remote integrated with an on-site staff. So it's it's the implementation. We we work with schools and hold schools hand or right there along the whole way. There's support. It's nothing to be afraid of. And one of the things that I think schools uh, need to start thinking about is not filling a stopgap with teletherapy, but how to incorporate it into their strategic plans, how to incorporate it into their budgeting. Because what happens is we have schools who come and treat it as a stopgap, then leave and then come back and then, and then maybe think, oh, we don't need it. And then we, then they come back and that becomes costly to the school it also becomes difficult for um, the adoption and the acceptance. So we're continuing to see good good strides in that way. But but uh, you know we really take it seriously when we go in, and we love to have fun. Nice, I like that. It, you know, when uh, it, just like what does it look like? I, I have to ask: How does a school or school system start uh, working with you? How do how do they? Um, engage Iluma. Well, I hope they listen to your podcast. Thanks. And, uh, you know, come visit our website, Iluma.com. And, and there's a form that you can fill out, but you can also, um, we're at tons of conferences. We love to be out in the community. We're on every major social media platform, trying to provide thought leadership and insight. So please come and, and, collaborate with us. We'd love to get to know you. 
And uh, it's as simple as going to the website and filling out that form. And one of our partnership managers will, will reach out and we'll talk with you. Love it. Uh, it and, you know, just a note, I'll have that information to uh, connect with Iluma and with you guys on my show notes. So it makes it easy there. And uh, um, I got one last question for you that a uh, little different than uh, what I've asked you in the past. It goes like this. Um, do you have a hero or someone you look for for inspiration to help you feel better or to help you make the right decision? I do. I have, I have several. And I think last time we met, I talked about my mom. As a matter of fact, just two days ago was the anniversary of her death. And if she were alive, she'd be 69 years. She is a hero. You know, and I've talked a lot about her. Today, I want to talk about Binoy Tameng. He has been a coach at a very low point in my life. I, I went to Binoy. And Binoy reminded me of my worth, reminded me of my potential, and reminded me about who I can be if I choose to be. And I think about that often. And he inspires me. He is, he is one of my heroes because I think heroes inspire. I think heroes show through personal example what a better way can look like. So, you know, hopefully, hopefully people listening to this can think of someone who inspires them to be better. I like that. Love it. And Jeremy, thanks so much for sharing Elumo with us. And this is awesome. It's just really cool what you guys are working on. Uh, wishing you the best in all you do. Thank you so much, Steve. Likewise. Hey, you have been listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast to help you help kids achieve their dreams. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the podcast network based in Canada called Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. The opinions expressed on Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Hey, thanks for listening. It would be awesome if you visited my website at stephenmaletto.com and connected with me, left a review, and listened to more episodes. And by the way, you could also share it with your friends, with your family, and uh, your colleagues. Thanks so much. You're awesome.